you know, as Christians, we have to understand and, and be real with where we are. That's what we have to see first, individually. And what where our mindset is and what we desire. Eric the Addisons. I think what God is really calling us back to, it's those individual personal revivals in our own lives where we're like, oh Lord, what have we done? We have minimized you. Promoting truth, wisdom, and empowerment. As the church, man, we should be on the forefront yes. of making disciples, of indoctrination and godly things. If we don't train our kids, they will not be able to stand. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Chances are pretty good. Somebody is about to be offended. That's always a pretty good guess, isn't it? Hello, my name is Todd Friel. I am the host of Wretched Radio, heard here on American Family Radio. Will and Miki of airing the Addisons. They are out today. I am in, and we're going to try to riddle a question that simply by asking it in our current culture it probably would offend somebody. Historically, in church, there are more girls than boys. That is worth pursuing. Why is that historically so for evangelical Christianity? And by simply asking it, the world would probably gasp. How dare you talk about any differences between boys and girls? Well, there just happen to be differences between boys and girls. So it is at the risk of offending somebody who's hypersensitive about pretty much everything let's try to resolve our riddle let's go talk about the book we all read books you know they're dangerous take a look it's in a book so many books so little time trying to unravel a mystery judaism a major religion in the world, Islam, an even more majorer, that's right, even more majorer religion in the world, have more men attending religious services than women. In fact, if you look at virtually every major religion around the globe, men are the dominant church or synagogue or mosque or grass hut, whatever it is, with one exception. Evangelical Christianity, more women attend church than men. More women are involved in book buying, record buying. Entire radio stations are programmed at women. If you're not familiar with the avatar known as Beth, she's a 34-year-old woman. She lives in the suburbs, has a couple of kids, owns a minivan, and she's driving around like a nobody's business to get her kids from one soccer practice to another piano recital. She's frazzled, and she needs hope. And so Christian radio stations program everything with Beth in mind. Why? Because in evangelical Christianity, women are the major consumers of Christian materials with one interesting exception, Bible buying. More men buy Bibles than women. Women consume pretty much everything else. Furthermore, church attendance, women are the larger demographic than males are. Why? To answer that question, we are going to turn to a book called Total Truth by one Nancy Piercy who does a super fine job of condensing history in a pretty pithy fashion to help us understand how we got to where we are today. Let's go back in the past, shall we? All the way to the time of the revolution. Yep, there's going to be a fair amount of reading from this book, but it is so helpful in having multiple aha moments. Oh, that makes sense. 
No wonder why this is going on today. No wonder why theology is such a lowly viewed object of Christianity. Why is it that we are so into emotionalism as opposed to theology, which should cause us to have emotions, but it is always going to be through the cognitive process. Always. But today in evangelical Christianity, nope. You got to have the music playing underneath the sermon for the culmination of the sermon. They got to have the, the climax moment or the worship. We've got to have the dim lights and we've got to set the environment to make it more emotionally motivating. Why? Let's go back in time. Way back. We sometimes forget, writes Piercy, that in pre-revolutionary America, the religious landscape was dominated by churches that rested on legal establishment. The Congregationalists in New England, the Episcopalians in New York, Virginia, Maryland, North and South Carolina, and Georgia. What exactly did that mean? What was the relationship between church and state pre-revolutionary America? Typically, the state collected tithes. Did you know that? And you had to pay them whether you went to church or not. And by the way, most people did not. The state also laid out new parish boundaries, subsidized new church construction, maintain parish properties, paid clergymen's salaries, hired and fired them. Did you know that? And even took measures to suppress dissenters. Baptist preachers, for example, were sometimes jailed and beaten. That's America, pre-revolutionary war. Finally, in many states, government positions were limited to church members. There were religious tests for office. In fact, if you go read the Constitution of a lot of states, probably all 13 colonies, they all include a belief statement about God. It might seem that having the government on their side would have given the established churches an edge. And to some extent, obviously, it did. But ultimately, it weakened them. Well, there's something we can learn, isn't it? Monopolies tend to be lazy, whether we're talking about businesses or schools or churches. That is very true. They get very complacent, and so did the churches. The established clergy often live like members of the gentry, employing ample time for leisure activities. For example, in Scotland's state church, which was Presbyterian Thomas Chalmers, who I believe was the inventor of the gap theory, and I'm not talking about the band from the 80s. He observed that after holding worship service, a minister may enjoy five days in the week of uninterrupted leisure. So here's what you've got, pre-revolutionary America. You really don't have much of an evangelical presence here. Baptists were looked at askance. And it was the state-run churches that were funded. Were they flourishing? And the answer is no. No, they were not. By contrast... The few evangelical ministers were enthusiastic activists, throwing themselves into ceaseless efforts to spread the gospel, setting up Sunday schools, additional worship services, Bible classes, personal visits, established charities, founded missionary societies. Chalmers himself later became an evangelical, after which he is reputed to have visited 11,000 homes in Glasgow during a single year. Becoming an evangelical made a significant difference in one style of ministry. And this is going to set the table for us in understanding the Great Awakenings. These are movements that are historical and have implications for culture. As we are going to see throughout this tour of history, major events took place. And I cannot help but think about 
Tucker Carlson. Do you remember Tucker Carlson being interviewed by Ben Shapiro and politely arguing that we got to slow our roll. We shouldn't just assume that progress means it's really good for everybody and that there aren't implications because there are implications and we are going to see massive implications from the Industrial Revolution. The Great Awakenings kicked it off. Then you've got the Industrial Revolution and then you've got the rise of feminism, which had impacts on the family, which means it had impacts, therefore, on the church. Back to our history lesson, courtesy of Nancy Piercy. A monopoly faith breeds religious indifference, not only among the clergy, but among members as well. This is one reason rates of religious adherence were lower in colonial days than we suppose. A modern analogy might be societies like Sweden, where everyone is putatively Lutheran, or Italy, where everyone's Roman Catholic. The level of religious participation in these countries is astonishingly low compared to that in America. Why? Because in Italy, the Roman Catholic Church has maintained its foothold. Maybe stranglehold would be better. But you talk to most Italians, and they're about as Catholic as, well, the Pope. (laughs) Guys, these days, he's not all that Catholic. That was what it was like in pre-Revolutionary War America. A state-run church. Different states, different churches. Finally, the established churches tended to be the first to drift into theological liberalism. Don't we see that with the Anglican Communion? By the way, the wealthier the church, the more likely its clergy were to enjoy social status and formal academic training, and thus also the more likely to welcome the liberalism emerging from European universities at the time. Leading scholars at Harvard and Yale became Unitarian. Did, did you wonder how it is that Yale and Harvard, which were started out as Christian institutions, have drifted into what they are today? It's because of mainline Protestant liberalism because they were state-funded churches. Instead of exhorting their congregations to repent and be saved, they delivered elegantly styled lectures on reasonable religion with the supernatural elements stripped away. So when the first and second Great Awakenings broke out, the liberal clergy, not thrilled, declaring themselves on the side of reason against the revivalist religion of the heart. And so it is. The table is set for the Great Awakenings that have had major impacts on family, culture, and the church that is dominated contrary to every other religion in the world, by women more than men. Please note for everybody who is infected by our age of sensitivity, am I saying that women shouldn't be involved in services? Well, of course not. Isn't it interesting that in the book of Acts, when it describes when Paul would set up a church, he would it would describe that many people or sometimes many leaders got saved and many women and many women multiple times lets us know Women did respond to the gospel with me. We want women to respond to the gospel. But when you see that there isn't parody, isn't isn't it sort of like reproduction? Isn't it amazing how God has it figured out that we have the right number of boys and the right number of girls? Unless, of course, you're China. And then you go about the business of trying to control the population. And what do you end up with? 
you end up with a lot of frustrated men who don't have women to marry. Why? Because with a one-child policy, women were typically the ones to be aborted or infanticide was committed against them, which is frankly what abortion is. And you've got more men than women. And that makes for a mess. Let's go back in time to the Great Awakenings. We've got to understand what was happening before the Great Awakenings, before we will understand their impact and the following history that has moved the evangelical movement into being predominantly an emotional movement. From Nancy Piercy's book, Total Truth, the established churches tended to be the first to drift into theological liberalism. The wealthier the church, the more likely the clergy was to go off the rails, but it doesn't finish. It's a common assumption that in order to survive, churches must accommodate to the age. But in fact, the opposite is true. In every historical period, the religious groups that grow most rapidly are those that set believers at odds with the surrounding culture. As a general principle, the higher a group's tension with mainstream society, the higher its growth rate. Hey, that means evangelical Christianity should be exploding right now <laughs> because those of us who are holding the biblical line are getting pretty annoying. But Nancy Piercy is going to make the case that holding on to conservative, a grammatical, historical, biblical hermeneutic, it is what causes a church to grow. The mainline churches, which became academic centers, places of reason, a a syncretistic blending of Greek philosophy, even Middle Ages philosophy. You name the philosophy. If it ain't theology proper, it's man-centered. They were mixing it together. And note this, too, that the mainline churches had a different view of soteriology. Nancy Piercy, religious organizations are stronger to the degree that they impose significant costs in terms of sacrifice and even stigma upon the members. Why? Because religions that demand a lot also give a lot. A frankly supernatural religion may demand more from adherence than a watered-down gospel of reasonable faith or social activism. But in turn, it gives much greater rewards in terms of doctrinal substance, intense spiritual experience, and a sense of direct access to God. People go to church in search of salvation, not social services. But we are nowhere near done understanding why it is we see more churches packed with pinks than blues. My name is Todd Friel, hosting for Will and Miki Addison here on American Family Radio. Let us continue to explore church history to resolve our riddle. Why do we see more women than men attracted to Christianity? Let's see, if something costs less, but people are happier with it, that sounds like something to look into, and that's MediShare. Maybe you've heard switching to MediShare to pay for healthcare can save the typical family 500 bucks a month, and that's huge, but it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan, double. MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge nationwide PPO network. So, yeah, you can save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. So if you're self-employed or part of the gig economy or you just want to plan you're happy with, you can call right now and get a price within two minutes 
Very, very smart use of two minutes. Here's the number you need. 833-44-BIBLE. That's 833-44-BIBLE. 833-44-BIBLE. In churches, and a lot of churches today, the issue of identity is sort of like the big elephant in the room. It's in the news, but it's not in the church. So if it's in society, it needs to be something the churches are addressing. In His Image, delighting in God's plan for gender and sexuality, is now available for church screenings and events. Every person in America needs to see this. And all pastors need to show this to the church, get the people informed. If the church and Jesus isn't the answer, where's the world going? We want the message of the film to touch as many hearts and lives as possible. And we'd love to join with you to bring the film to your community. So let's say you have a small group or your church, or we've even been bringing the film into some prisons. We want to partner with you. So what we'll do is we'll send you a special kit and it's completely free, and it'll just have some extra resources to help you promote your event. To find out more about how to host an event, go to inhisimage.movie and click on the Host an Event tab. That's inhisimage.movie. From the Pacific Justice Institute, this is The Legal Edge, defending your rights as a Christian, a parent, and a citizen. Here's Brad Vegas. Eighth graders in a Washington State school district were given flyers from teachers which outlined their rights to have an abortion without parental consent. These flyers were provided by Planned Parenthood and included information about birth control, condoms, HIV, and STD testing. Well, Pacific Justice Institute is active in defending parental rights and sex education and protecting children from harmful indoctrination. Folks, the schools are past teaching basic biology. They are teaching an agenda. Visit pji.org to download the free resource titled Sex Ed Parental Rights. Learn more about our ministry and get exclusive email updates by registering for The Legal Insider at pji.org. Remember the website, pji.org. Airing the Addisons, promoting truth, wisdom, and empowerment on American Family Radio. History is not infallible, but it can be oh so helpful. Welcome back to Airing the Addisons. Sands, Will, and Mickey Addison, they are out today. My name is Todd Friel, host of Wretched Radio and TV. Filling in, I don't know what they were thinking, but today we are going to think on church history. History is not nilly-willy. That, that's, that's the academic term. It's not just careening from here to there. Instead, God is ordaining everything. That means we should be students of history, recognizing our interpretation certainly isn't infallible, but... To neglect history, like we're doing in our public schools, would be to the detriment of the health of the church. And the church today, interestingly, is seen with more women packing the pews than men. Now, we don't want to change our theology or our soteriology specifically because right now there are more women than men. We, we can't be gender manipulators but we might learn how we are doing church and who's affected by it by studying church history. And that's what we're going to do. We continue our tour. We often forget that ever since Christianity was made the state religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century, the church had been associated with the ruling class. 
As America was becoming a nation, most European countries still had state churches. You still see that with the Anglican bishops sitting in the House of Lords. Still, in colonial America, clerical and government authorities were intertwined. Since things like tithing and Sunday attendance were matters of legal coercion, ministers were also the most highly educated in a community, which meant they were given deference as leaders. Do you feel the ground? Do you, do you feel the structures of early Christianity in America? The elitism was utterly abhorrent to revivalists who set out to popularize religion. Fired by a profound concern for ordinary folks, they pronounced the right of the unlearned to investigate religion for themselves. They made the gospel accessible by using simple language, spontaneous preaching. They delivered sermons that were emotive and extemporaneous, a novelty, a refreshing one too, at a time when it was customary for clergy to simply read sermons written out ahead of time. John Wesley, the revivalist wanted to preach nothing but plain truth for plain people, said he. Ordinary believers were no longer rewarded as passive recipients as they were under the old hierarchical model, but as active participants. And so it is because the state churches were academic, bloated, hierarchical systems. There was a response to it. And we're smelling the beginning of the evangelical movement. What happened to the established churches? They went into a slow but steady process of decline, which continues to this day. For a long time, they were able to mask it because the overall population in America was growing so fast. The numbers continued. So it looked like they were increasing, but they weren't keeping up with population growth. By the 1960s, the mainline churches could no longer hide the fact that even absolute numbers were falling. In 72, the executive of the theologically liberal National Council of Churches wrote a book called Why Conservative Churches Are Growing. Be encouraged, Bible preacher, because even if your church doesn't grow, you're being faithful to the word of God. But it looks like historically you should be growing. Frankly, for the first time, mainline liberal churches were dying, he admitted. The colleagues excoriated him for airing unpleasant truths in public. But today, even liberals admit that evangelical denominations have confounded all predictions by not dying out. They're growing. Overall, the Great Awakenings are largely responsible for the fact that America remains the most religious of the industrialized nations. Evangelicalism has permeated all social classes. Quote, in 1790, something like 10% of Americans professed membership in a Christian church. Ten per- I thought it was 17. <laughs> Sorry, I was, I was being a little optimistic. 10% professed membership in a Christian church. But by the time of the Civil War, the proportion had multiplied several times, and the main cause was the active labor of revivalists. I can just hear Ray Comfort right now wanting to jump into the fray. See, this is why we need to be evangelizing. This is why everybody needs to be preaching the gospel to people, because that's how people get saved historically. And by the way, you don't need to go looking. That was a spot-on impersonation of Ray Comfort. Trust me. Even he agrees. Evangelism and revivalist preaching, open-air preaching, it changed the nation. So what happened along the way? Huh? We, we, we started out 
in our country with people being concerned about being reasonable Christians with a reasonable faith delivered dryly by academics to suddenly be being more of a personalized religion promoted by revivalists who believe that a man or woman, woman must be born again or they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So how is it that evangelical Christianity finds itself, not everybody and not every movement, I'm talking about broader evangelical Christianity, we actually have preachers today that will say, enough of this head stuff, you got to just feel it in the heart, that has echoes of revivalist preaching, emotive preaching, we'll get to him, but think Charles Finney, the man was actually a heretic, but he desired to just stoke people, to get them to start acting more Christianly. And so what did he use? He did preach some really fine stuff, but it was a shtick to do what? To emote people, to make a decision for Jesus so that they would start behaving a little bit more admirably in a culture that causes all of us to collide with one another. But it wasn't really so that they could be regenerated. And so it is, we see the beginning of the trend. Christian academics down, Christian emotionalism up, robust theology out the door, gimmicks, music, dramatic preaching in the door. If we don't teach history to our kids, and I'm not talking about, well, then it was George Washington, then John Adams, then Thomas. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Christian history. Seeing God's handwriting all over every single chapter in history, not just American, but in all history. He's writing a great script. We need to be Christocentric Christians. You know, the way the Bible is. Think about Mark chapter 9. Right there in Mark 9, Jesus is transfigured with whom? Moses and Elijah. Why? Well, they represented the law and the prophets. And what did Peter think about the vision? This is amazing. We need to build a tent for Jesus, for Moses, and for Elijah. And what did the father thunder? This is my son. Listen to him. Moses and Elijah were gone. Jesus lingered. Why? Because the Bible is Christocentric, which means the universe is Christocentric, which means history is Christocentric, which means history, if it's going to be properly taught, at least in a Christianly way, it needs to include what God is doing. Nancy Piercy, in her book, Total Truth, help us to see God's handwriting throughout the history of America. And in studying this history, I'll tell you, it's going to help understand Precisely why we're seeing what we're seeing in evangelical Christianity today. But please note this. We also have to be careful when we study history that we do not make the church a reactor to our current historical moment. That we don't say, ah, they did this and it failed. Therefore, we need to do that. That's the wrong way to understand it. We understand doing right because this is what the Bible says. And then when we look at history, we see, and there it is right there. In the early years of the founding of this country, the churches that died 
and are still dying to this day, it's a slow lingering sort of death, are the mainline Protestant denominations that are that are too academic, too lofty. And then and on the on the other hand, though, you've got evangelicals which whiplashed with a concern that there were just all kinds of people living a dead orthodoxical life but weren't really saved, they became very emotive and they set aside academics. Now, we might hear that and go, well, therefore we need to... No. Why should Christians study? Why should Christians be smart? It's not because it works. It's not because we don't want to look like societal dum-dums. It is because God is smart. There's an understatement. And we're as image bearers, and we should be smart too. And if we're really going to be salt and light in this, especially in this challenging age where social media just allows everybody to shotgun blast anything, we need to be equipped and prepared and smart not persuaded by, not influenced by, not responding to theological history, philosophical history, but by studying the Bible and then seeing it written out throughout the pages of history. Back to Nancy Piercy, total truth. What happened along the way to the evangelical mind? Why did the evangelical movement become largely anti-intellectual with little sense of how to relate to the mainstream culture? One, The focus on an intense conversion experience was highly effective in bringing people to faith, but it tended to redefine religion in terms of emotion while contributing to a neglect of theology and doctrine and the whole cognitive element of belief. And this did damage by reinforcing a conception of Christianity as a non-cognitive experience. And we see that lingering today, don't we? Second, What happened to the evangelical mind? The use of the vernacular language and simple folk songs was highly effective in reaching ordinary people. (laughs) Jimmy, did did we get our cough button fixed? Because I've got this little thing, just Caleb. Uh, Yeah, no, it's not. It's still being worked on. Mm. Guys coming today. Well, we'll just fix that in post. But the revivalists often went much further, practically wearing their ignorance on their sleeves as though being theologically educated equated with being spiritually dead. One of their favorite themes was poking fun at the educated clergy back east. We see that in churches today where the pastor goes up, you know, I was, I had some stuff prepared, but I'm just going to wing it and let the spirit move. That, that, that is a sign also of anti-intellectualism not delivering something that has been thoughtfully prepared. Third reason for the diminishing of the evangelical mind, addressing individuals apart from their, this is fascinating to me, addressing individuals apart from their family or church was effective in forcing a crisis of faith. You can't be born into the kingdom. That's true. You must be born again. That's true. But watch what happens. It led to a radically individualistic view of the church that rejected the intellectual riches developed over the centuries by great minds throughout church history, including corporate statements of faith, such as creeds and confessions. No creeds, just deeds, Daddy-O. We don't say, we don't recite that stuff. We just love the Lord. That's an anti-intellectualism, and it's individualistic. And you and I breathe this air to this day individual Christianity. Now, we understand a man must be born again. It, you, can't be, you can't be brought into the kingdom on the apron strings of your mother. 
You must be born again, and that should promote a crisis of faith. But at the same time, it promoted something else too, a moving away from a collective, the thinking of the church. I wonder if this is why we have so much church shopping and bopping. Many evangelicals uncritically absorbed the individualism that was coming into vogue in American political life and simply transferred it to the church. An atomistic, voluntaristic church theology was born that did not reflect biblical teaching so much as the political philosophy of the day. Revivalism led to a new model of leadership. The pastor was no longer a teacher who instructs a covenanted congregation, but a celebrity who was able to inspire the masses. Does that not ring a bell? The first Great Awakening began when a young English revivalist named George Whitfield made a sensational appearance in the American colonies. This guy was theologically sound and radical. Having been an actor as a youngster, Whitfield always retained a love for dramatic flair, which he employed to build God's kingdom. One biographer titles his book The Divine Dramatist and says Whitfield pioneered a new preaching style. An actor-preacher as opposed to a scholar-preacher, he raised his arm, stamped his feet, acted out Bible stories, and wept aloud. This was novel, and this was effective. And now you and I, if we're not good historians, will go, well, then we need to stop that. We just need to be academic preachers. Wrong, wrong, wrong. We need emotion, but it needs to come through the cognitive process, which means we need preachers who do teach theology but who don't fail to attempt to reach the heart also. We shouldn't be one or the other. We need to be both and. To promote his tours, Whitfield pioneered the use of mass marketing, borrowing from marketing techniques in the commercial world of his day. Isn't that something? When he planned to visit a city, he would send out assistance up to two years in advance. Do you wonder why he had big crowds? Those things were worked to distribute flyers, line up the facilities. He issued a constant stream of advanced publicity from press releases to newspaper ads to printed copies of his sermons. He followed a strategy of self-promotion and a publicity that was unheard of in his day. He would sometimes even inflate the numbers to generate greater attention in the press. Well, I hope that's not accurate. Or stage events again to draw crowds and publicity in newspapers. These were some of the best publicized events in colonial America. And that is where we are going to pause just for a moment as we will enter into the 20th and 21st centuries to resolve the riddle, why do we see more women than men in churches? Please note, we're not trying to resolve this so that we can balance the scales. We're trying to study this so that we can understand what might we be doing that needs to alter, be altered because for some reason we're attracting more goyles than boys. We'll continue that on airing the Addisons next. Hey Siri. Go ahead. Show me some Christian music streaming apps. Okay. Here's what I found under Christian music streaming apps. Hmm. The AFR app. Isn't that talk shows only? It was, until recently. Now the new music streaming option plays music 24-7. Oh, wow. God is good. All the time. And all the time. God is good. Download the AFR app today at AFR.net. 
American Family Radio newscasts are now available as a podcast. I'm Rusty Pugh. I'm Steve Jordahl. Didn't catch the full story? Listen to the podcast. I'm Chris Woodward. I'm Chad Groening. Didn't have the radio on at the top of the hour? Listen to the podcast. I'm Charlie Bunch. And I'm Fred Jackson. Get accurate news from a Christian perspective whenever you want it with the American Family News podcast. You can also sign up for our daily news brief. Visit onenewsnow.com. You know, when Matthew 19, the, the scripture records a Pharisee trying to test Jesus concerning marriage, and Jesus responded, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In the beginning, the first institution God created was the family. Marriage is the centerpiece of family. As a husband and father myself, let me tell you, marriage is absolutely wonderful. And we want to encourage and educate people to embrace God's design as the fundamental building block for all of human civilization and to celebrate the lifelong union of one man and one woman as the objective institution that produces human flourishing. Tune in to By Design as we explore God's true purpose and design for marriage. Just visit the podcast page at AFR.net. The following are real life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. I initially was scared to call and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-788-1813. That's 1-800-788-1813. This is Airing the Addisons on American Family Radio. Welcome back to Airing the Addisons. You're right, my voice is not familiar because Will and Miki are out today and I don't sound like either one of them. Maybe like Miki a little bit, but the point is, my name is Todd Friel. I am the host of Wretched Radio, heard here on American Family Radio, and we are trying to resolve a bit of a riddle Not so we can adjust our churches in order to attract a particular gender, but to see if having attracted a particular gender historically means that maybe just maybe we need to adjust some of our thinking. Who knew soteriology had so much to do with history? Nancy Piercy's book, Total Truth, does a fine job of retelling history, philosophical history, theological history, and she is doing that in America, and I was so struck by it. I'm willing to read a fair amount of it, which historically doesn't make for the best radio content, but we see echoes of evangelical Christianity today, not the magazine, back then. Consider this. The Great Awakenings, 
were radical because they insisted on a person being born again. But the opponents of the awakening, in other words, the mainline Protestants, treated the Christian life as a gradual growth in faith and holiness by what they called Christian nurture. Through participation in rituals, the teaching of the church, they insisted it was a thoroughly rational growth in knowledge. The acts of the soul in conversion are the most rational acts. This reflected the Enlightenment view that humans are preeminently rational creatures. The passions were distrusted as forces that interfere with reason. The critics often charged that the revivalists were subverting the social order by rousing the passions of the ignorant rabble. (laughs) That was the setup back then. We need to remember... Cognito ut intelligam, which was, uh, no, he did intelligas, and then Anselm changed it. It was a, uh, it was, it was, it was the fellow from Florida, Augustine, who said, I believe that I might know, understanding that conversion were necessary to become a spiritual man, to have the life, uh, the mind of Christ. Without it, you can't get stuff. The revivalists probably understood what Augustine was getting at. They were concerned that the entire process of becoming a Christian was just a thought process. It's not. It's will. It's emotion. It's everything. Desires. The whole shebang. And mainline Protestantism only focused on being rational and reasonable, kind of milking people into the kingdom. Revivalist preaching was radically different and in doing so, in, in, in rightly addressing a problem, they ended up creating other problems. And we need to remember that, too. Your next church meeting, remember history. You're making a decision that's going to impact the congregation. Do not fail to say, let's think this through for a moment, gentlemen. Let's consider what this might do to Helen in the nursing home. Let's consider what this might do to Larry, who is homebound. Let's consider how this might impact children's ministries, our budget, etc. Because decisions have implications. And so it was the revivalist preachers, some of our ancestors in evangelical Christianity, they saw a correction that was needed. And they almost overcorrected. Not wanting to address the noggin. Skirting around it. Turning the gospel into an emotive show. By contrast, supporters of the awakening insisted that a merely intellectual assent to theological propositions was not enough. A change of heart was needed, a new birth, which came from European pietism. If you remember after Martin Luther, he wasn't the one to just launch it, but he's the big guy. And Lutheranism started to spread throughout Europe, Germany, up into the Scandinavian countries in particular, there was a there was a response to the concern that too many people are are well they're they're easy believism people thought the pietists they just think that grace covers everything so don't worry about anything you can go on living that grace might more abound and the pietists were the ones to go uh uh-uh, uh uh-uh, uh uh-uh. it needs to be an individual response somebody who repents and puts their trust in Jesus Christ and is genuinely born again and bears fruit in keeping with repentance. The revivalists felt that. Our people do not so much need to have their heads stored as to have their hearts touched, wrote Jonathan Edwards. Now, he's fascinating. Did you catch that quote? 
Our people do not much need to have their heads stored as to have their hearts touched. Jonathan Edwards was one of the finest theological minds in American history. And did you hear what he said? Our people do not so much need to have their heads stored as to have their hearts touched. He realized that there must be a personalization of the faith. He was not an anti-intellectual. He was trying to offer a corrective. You and I need to find that balance. One of his protégés described the best preacher as one whose heart is ravished with the glory of divine things. The emphasis on making Christianity a felt thing did not mean evangelicals were outright anti-intellectual, not in the early stages. What they opposed was merely intellectual knowledge of God. Well, unfortunately, these days we've grown away from that. Preaching is dumb and dumber. Because, hey, we don't need all that stuffy knowledge. That's the, that's the new apostolic reformation movement, which, by the way, is the big revivalist movement of our day. Many succeeded in maintaining a balance between piety and rationalism. Edwards being a good example. He maintained an admirable blend of theological learning and spiritual fervor. And yet, the new birth was consistently described in emotional terms as producing sudden rapturous joys and boundless felicity. I don't even argue with that. A convert at the time called it the surest way to happiness. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? You've tried sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Wait till you try Jesus. You don't know what happy is. One historian comments, somewhat sarcastically, that the incessant search for emotional rapture through the new birth represented the evangelical version of the pursuit of happiness. That is evangelicalism in its nascent stage. But it continues by being influenced by a radical American individualism. Unlike the local pastor ministering to his own covenanted congregation, the revivalist often preached to crowds drawn together from across several congregations and denominations. That was a big change. You are being addressed as an individual, not your membership in a church. The revivalist went even further, explicitly urging people to leave their local churches to find ministers who are truly converted. An idea that was shocking. Now, let's be careful here. There were, there were good reasons to escape those churches. They were right. The point is not that you shouldn't ever do that. The point is, this is something that we do today quite quickly, don't we? If you're not happy at all, go. If they aren't doing everything exactly right, scram. Get to another place. Why? Because the evangelical faith has, has borne the fruit of an individualistic, atomistic Christianity. I'm I'm the Lone Ranger. This is this is this is Jesus and me. Have you ever heard a sermon encouraging us to remember that yeah, it's Jesus and me, but it's also Jesus and us? That was being whittled away, courtesy of history. Piety was no longer something inextricably bound up with local community and corporate spirituality. The emphasis shifted to a more individualistic and subjective sense of piety that found its quintessential expression in the internal, highly personal experiences of the new birth. To wrench individuals free from the traditional church bonds, the revivalists adopted a contentious, even defiant tone. Samuel Finley, who became president of the College of New Jersey, that's Princeton, 
urged his listeners to take sides immediately for or against their parish ministers. Away with your carnal prudence. Either follow God or bail. Now, again, was some of that correct? It was. The point is that the the individual can make a really quick individual decision to just scoot to take care of self as opposed to think about others in the faith, including your local congregation. Taunting religious authorities became so widespread on college campuses that in 1741, the trustees at Yale had to pass a college law forbidding students to call college officers carnal or unconverted. That was not everybody's thinking in the 18th century, but a lot of folks' attitude. But let's fast forward now to the end of the 18th century. We're going to call it 1780. A new era dawned in America. Western civilization really called the Industrial Revolution. You're thinking, what does this have to do with church? I would suggest to you a lot. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, families worked together. They had industry together. They farmed together. They were in business together. Regularly, there would be storefronts while the family lived in back or above. That means dad was staying home to work with the family. And that also, by the way, means mom was home working because they shared in this industry. Men, women, husbands, wives, and children to boot. But the Industrial Revolution plucked dad out of the home, took him away to make a living elsewhere, leaving mom at home. And what happened because of that? Sermons suddenly shifted. Prior to the Industrial Revolution, parenting sermons were aimed at pop. After, they were aimed at mom. Why? Because increasingly, she was seen as the spiritual leader of the home. The moral authority, while dad went out and worked in that barbaric world, that is why in the 1800s into the early 1900s, When you study the feminist movement, there's a reason there was a feminist movement, because our culture esteemed women as the ones who really had a better handle on these ideas. After all, they were the spiritual leader in the home, and that is why historically we see women leading the charge on issues like slavery abolition, the women's rights movement, for better and for worse, child labor laws. Why women? Because of the Industrial Revolution. And by 1930, wow, we just covered a lot of history. By 1930, we have Dagwood Bumstead. You remember Dagwood Bumstead, the dithering dad that everybody laughed at? Why? Well, because dad had been relegated to the outer fringe of both family and church life and societal life. He was just being a breadwinner. And women were the ones who were the moral leaders. And church increasingly was done, whether it was intentional or it's, it's just the way that we, we breathe our air and we make a difference in what we're doing because of what we're seeing in the pews. A church became increasingly what we would call today seeker-sensitive, softer. We've got to get rid of these sharp edges because, in general, Women don't care for that type of preaching. I know it was a broad brush stereotype, but I'm just saying a lot of churches felt that way and continue to feel that way. If we want women to come, we've got to make the church a little bit more feminine. 
And that is what we are seeing today. Now the question is, what do we do with this? If it is true, if this accounting of history is accurate, that the church has oh so subtly and oh so gently become more gentle for the gentler gender, does that mean we suddenly need to do motorcycle church? And men, come to church, bring your hatchets because we're going to sharpen them before the service. I, no, that's, that's not what we do. What we need to do is not breathe in our cultural air. To not do church based on gender, male or female. That, that's the point of this. This isn't to go, we need, we need a more muscular church so that men are attracted. We've seen that trend, haven't we? You've got all kinds of movements that are trying to be just a little bit tougher so that the guys will be attracted. That's wrong, too. Instead, we need to do church God's way, which means we need a regulating principle to tell us how we're to do church. And the best model for knowing how to do that is by studying Jesus himself. How did he live? Some people have called him a warrior poet. He was strong. He overturned tables. And he was strong physically as a carpenter, maybe construction worker. But he was also gentle. He put little children on his knees, a kind of unheard of for a rabbi in that day. He, he, he embodies both so beautifully. And we need to mirror that. And our church service needs to be regulated, not by which gender are we attracted. Oh, we need more men, so toughen it up. More, more steel guitars. Nope, we don't have enough women. Start playing Barry Manilow. Okay, you get my point. We do church based on the way God says it, and we would all do well to ask, how is our church currently running? Have we perhaps modeled our services to attract a particular gender? And if that's the case, we simply repent, and then we go about the business of doing church God's way, which, if you will, is kind of gender-free. I told you at the beginning, somebody might be offended by this. <laughs> Please feel free to send your complaining emails to Will and Miki Addison. <laughs> My name is Todd Friel, host of Wretched Radio. I want to thank Will and Miki for the privilege, and I want to thank you for listening to Airing the Addisons on American Family Radio. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.